Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Lumina Hospice and Palliative Care End-of-Life Podcast. My name is Bob Madar, and today we're going to spend the entire time talking with someone you've already met, a hospice patient who, in the interest of confidentiality, we've called Margaret. Patients like Margaret are the focus of everything that hospice does, and the goal is to provide Margaret and patients like her with compassion, comfort, and support to help them live out the rest of their lives on their own terms among people who care. I interviewed Margaret at her home, and prior to my visit, Margaret had been creating a life review with support from a hospice volunteer. And I asked her to share some of what she'd been writing. Oh, by the way, um, there was a crew working on the gutters of the house while I was there, And you'll probably notice some talking in the background, hammering, and other construction-related noises. Um, And I hope they don't distract you too much from what Margaret has to say. Dear friends and family, I've been thinking about my life and the things that have happened. I was born in April of 1924. I was the youngest of four. My two oldest brothers and sisters were James and Evelyn, who were 18 and 16 years older, and my brother Paul was seven and a half years older. My mother, Catherine Fielding Hunter, was 44, and my dad, James E. Hunter, was 49 when I was born. Dad spoiled me terribly by eating all the things I didn't want on my plate. My brother, Paul, would take me on his bicycle to the Mad River where he fished and telling me in a very short manner, don't talk, shh, be quiet, stand still. The Arcata Redwood Company was only about a mile from our home, which was at 18th and G Street in Arcata. My dad owned a grocery store on the corner of 11th and G Street and my sister Evelyn at that time would deliver orders to his customers. She was in college at Humboldt's Teachers and in 1930 was able to go to the Olympics in Amsterdam. And uh, so my dad told her if she could win her way to New York, he would pay her way on the ship going over. And when she came back from uh, Amsterdam, she brought me my Dutch doll. which I still have, and it was decorated in the typical uh, holland attire with the little black hat and the lace top and the skirts and and the wooden shoes. So I have that. She sits in a wicker rocker chair that I used to sit in. (laughs) My mother would have friends in, and they would be doing embroidery work or sewing, and I was in a little chair, and I was told to be quiet but I did little quilt blocks. So I learned to to sew. To sew. Margaret's mother had a restaurant in the family store, and when Margaret was in the eighth grade, she would often come down to help out with the lunch crowd. I asked Margaret to describe a typical lunch menu. Mother had a certain type of food. It was all one. And uh, the price was 35 cents for lunch and 50 cents for dinner. But uh, the food that she would serve was usually a roast and a full meal. 
and she would make six to eight pies every morning so she had fresh pie. There was always a, a cream pie, a berry pie, and then an apple pie. So she was very busy in the mornings getting ready for the noon meal, mm -hmm. and I would go back to school. Uh, I liked music very much, and I learned to play the flute and the saxophone. When I was in the high school band and orchestra, and the band was invited to San Francisco area each year, I played the bass saxophone for the opening of the Bay Bridge 1.7 miles in 1940. In 1940, wow. I had new shoes, and my feet sure did hurt the next day. Going across the bridge? <laughs> Going across oh, the bridge. So. I, so. uh, I finished high school in May of 41, and I started college but quit and went to work for the Bank of America as a bookkeeper where I met Harold Butler and Faye Cook, who was my bridesmaid. So here's a question I have for you. And, and what was it like for you? In, in 1941, you would have been how old in, in the 40, in 41? I was 16. You were about 16 in 41. What was it like for you when the war broke out? What kinds of things happened for you at that point? Because that was a huge change in the country. Um, I was 15 in April. I was then 16. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I would go up to the college, and they had a, a tall dormer on Humboldt State College where we would watch the Japanese boats come into the bay. So we would watch and tell anyone that needed to know that those ships were coming into the bay and to, to press, push them out. So this is like a coastal watch kind of a yes, thing? Yes. Oh, interesting. Because we could see the ocean out. From the dormer. From the dormer of the of Humboldt State College. At one point while Margaret and I were talking, I remarked at how beautiful the ranch looked as I drove up to the house for the interview. And that led Margaret to reminisce and reflect on how the family came to live at the ranch. We loved the ranch when we came up here to look at it. And when we came, my dad came up and he walked all over the ranch acreage to make sure that it was the right place for, for his, his baby to come. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and my mother came up and looked at the house because this was built in 1956. And uh, she came up and she looked and said, oh, yes, and look at the molding on it. <laughs> so it was approved. After we moved here, my dad <clears throat> phoned one day and he said, have you named the ranch? And uh, I said, no. And he said, does Lee have a name for it? And I said, no, but I'll ask him. He was in the house. I said, Lee, do you want to name the ranch? He said, no, if he's got a name, that's fine. So he says, well, since you're the only lady there, you're the Lone Star, so it's the Lone Star Ranch. So oh, I'm the star of this You are ranch. the star of the ranch. <laughs> At this point, Margaret began to talk about why it was so important for her to be at home at the end of her life. I look around my home, mm -hmm. and there are so many religious items that have been given to me, mm -hmm. and my home has been blessed by the priest in Corvallis. So all the rooms are blessed. Like I say, this is the room I want to be in. Well, I would imagine as you look around your, uh, as you look around the room, there are 
so many things that have memory attached to them, I would right. think. And have been given to me. Have been given to you. In right? fact, there were those chairs and another one in the front room mm-hmm. were Dorothy's. This couch was Dorothy's. When she moved up from from uh, San Diego, mm-hmm. she brought them with her. And uh, that poor couch has seen better days. It goes Still looking pretty good, it though. Goes to, Third of the floor, there's nothing to keep you up. <laughs> oh. One of the things that they talk about is how important it is to be in your home with things that mean something to you right. and give you a connection to other people. Right. And I hear you as I listen to you and stuff. I mean, just those baskets, for example, up there. You know, those are from your childhood, in a yeah. way, and and can take you back, right? To that. And I have all my pictures up on the rack here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Ken and his bride Nancy. They were married back at uh, Disneyland, and that's uh, their daughter at three and a half years old. Oh, we don't know. And then another picture of him with Nancy. Those are very nice pictures. And then my other kids are all along up here. So another thing it seems to me where you're seated right now where you're sitting right now as you look around the room you in in some ways it's like you see your life history here in a way is that would that be adequate That's right that picture was Lee's dad's picture I'll be done And when he lived with us he brought it down here and uh, we put it up above the television and that was uh, the Columbia River before the bridges were built. Yeah, up. right, absolutely. So, absolutely. A, uh, and then I look at it and I see the cross and I think, yes, God, I love you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that there's something every day that is very fundamental with my religion. No kidding. And so, two, so what I think is, I'm, if I'm if I'm hearing this right, two things. One, there are things here that you see every day that are fundamental to your religion. And then there are things here that you see every day that are fundamental to your family. Right. And, and does that give you, is that something that, that, that is, is calming and, and reassuring to you? Yes. My religion is such that I know God's will will be done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that seems to give you, you seem very yeah. at peace to me. I am at peace. Right. I don't have any pain, although I was very ill after I had the, the water on my lungs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't think I was going to live. But you know, there's a little Irish in me. <laughs> That's good. I, I can like still kick. I can still kick. That's good. That's so, very good. No, my little shamrock's hanging up there. That's great. All the different things on my whatnot there. I asked Margaret how many grandchildren and great-grandchildren she had, and with the assistance of her granddaughter, she counted them up. As I listened to the two of them talking, I realized that I was witnessing the end result of the support Spenton Hospice Service provides to patients and their families that give them the opportunity to reflect together on the patient's life and legacy. So you have five kids. Dawn doesn't have any. Tom. How many does Tom have? 
He had three. Yep. And then their three had two each. Three. So Sarah has, or Sarah doesn't have any. So Katie has one. And Kevin has two. Yep. So then we make... go to Bill. How many does Bill have? Four. Josh and Justin. Me and Carly. Yeah. So how many great-grandchildren are there? That's nine. So, yeah, because Josh has two. Justin has one. I have three. And Carly has two. So those are great-grandchildren. That's eight grandchildren on that one. Yeah. And then we go to... Oh, I mixed those up. Ken. Ken. Ken has... Two, two with kids. your grandchildren. No, they'll, yeah, they'll be your grandchildren. And then we go to Jack. And Jack has how many? He had seven. Yeah, seven. And Cassandra has? Two. One now. Just the one that was just yeah. born. Yeah. So those are, that's your family and grandchildren there. Yeah. Wow, so how many total then? So there will be, so there's five boys. That had that sixteen grandchildren. Wow! And then the sixteen grandchildren make two from Dawn that have passed. They passed in mm-hmm. infancy, but those mm-hmm. are those are your grandbabies. So we have so you have twelve great great grandchildren. Congratulations! Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That is an achievement. My goodness gracious. Well, it was achieved because I could kick. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, that just about wraps up this episode. And I must say, I really enjoyed my conversation with Margaret. At this point, I'd like to introduce the question that I'm using as the focus of these podcasts. What can the experiences of patients near the end of their lives and the people who care for them and love them tell us about what is important in living and dying? And as I think about my conversation with Margaret, I've learned several things that relate directly to this question. Number one, at the end of life, a life review is a good way to reflect and take stock of your life. Two, It can be very meaningful to spend your last days at home, surrounded by things that remind you of your past and the people who are important to you. And three, it's really important to be close to and in the presence of family and friends at the end of your life. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll return for episode three, when we'll spend the entire time talking with Kayla, a wise young hospice worker, to find out what she has learned about living and dying from her work with hospice patients and their families. For more information, please visit luminahospice.org.